Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Metabolic Classroom, a nutrition and lifestyle podcast focused on the truth behind why we get sick and fat. What you're about to hear was taken from a live broadcast streamed on InsulinIQ.com. The Metabolic Classroom is brought to you by InsulinIQ and by Health Code Meal Replacement Shakes. Episode 30, The Healthy Whole Grain Question. For our entire lives, we've always heard that, quote, whole grains are an essential part of a balanced diet. In light of what we know about nutrition and insulin, does that statement hold up? Join Dr. Bickman and the Insulin IQ team for a conversation about the evidence. This is one of those dogmatic views when it comes to nutrition. Uh, grains, whole grains, they really occupy uh, a, a very revered position and within the hollowed halls of, of dietetics and, and nutrition in general. And <clears throat> so let's unpack it a little bit. Uh, grains, of course, is a, that's a very big blanket term. And when, when people are using the term whole grains, they're essentially, they're comparing it to refined grains, which is to say that there's maybe a little more fiber that's been retained. That's, that's almost the only difference between what is called a whole grain and then versus a refined grain. The fact is for an insulin guy, it actually doesn't make much of a difference when it's all said and done. But let's, let's, let's dive into it um, with, some, with several studies that I want to cite. And I hate, to, I hate to maybe lead with the spoiler, but the, the, the sum of this all is going to be they're probably not as healthy as, as we've been told. Now, this audience here isn't uh, this, this isn't going to be surprising, but maybe some of the information we discuss today can be shared and used by you listeners um, to share with others uh, that you know and love or that you interact with in a professional setting in or out of a clinic. So the idea that grains, that whole grains are heart healthy or healthy overall for, um, for just human health is that uh, is based on correlational studies almost, almost completely. 
And just as a reminder, and this is a topic we've touched on previously, correlational studies are those that can only find a coincidence versus causal studies or causation or clinical studies where you can actually say this thing caused another thing. Now back to the correlational studies, which is the basis of the entire paradigm that whole grains are healthy. These are the kinds of studies that uh, hand people questionnaires and then look at the health of the person. Uh, now there's a lot of, and there's conflicting evidence there. Uh, and in fact, I will cite one study called the PURE study, P-U-R-E. The PURE study was so, um, such a revelation because of its size and its findings. It was a massive multi-country multi study done over the past few years that involved, I think, upwards of 18,000 people across dozens of countries. And they found that grain consumption, yes, even the revered whole grains, actually predicted higher mortality. So there was a positive correlation between the people that it reported eating higher amounts of grains and then just dying more from all cause. Well, that correlational evidence directly challenges the, the, the hypothesis, which is, of course, the prevailing view that eating more whole grains is going to help you live longer and better. So the pure study is one, and we have that a link to that in, in the notes of this show. Um, and now that's correlational, and I don't like correlational evidence. I'm a I'm an actual what's called a basic scientist. I like to actually do an intervention, do an experiment, and then see what happens, because then I can say this intervention caused this result. Now there's another study that I want to um, reference here, and this was a study done by one of my heroes, Gerald Reven, and it was published in 19. 87. And we also, we have a link to that one as well. That is titled the deleterious metabolic effects of high carbohydrate sucrose containing diets in patients with non-insulin dependent diabetes mellitus. Well, that's just a long way of long, long winded way of saying, what does a, a low fat, high carb diet do in someone with diabetes? So this diet, it, it, it matters because they put people on the, pers the proscribed diet by the American Diabetes Association, including healthy whole grains. And, and lower fat meals. This is, of course, the type of food and the type of eating that gets a stamp of approval from the American Diabetes and the American Heart Associations. And yet what happened? Gerald Reven said it best. His conclusion over these roughly two weeks of putting type 2 diabetics on this low-fat, high-carbohydrate diet containing high amounts of whole grains, he reported these results document that low-fat, high-carbohydrate diets um, containing moderate, amount, moderate amounts of sugar, which is allowed, but again, I'm really um, emphasizing that whole grains were emphasized in the diet. Um, anyway, it's similar in composition to the recommendations of the American Diabetes Association have deleterious metabolic effects when consumed by patients with type 2 diabetes. Well, that kind of starts to, not kind of, and starts to, that directly challenges this idea that whole grains are somehow going to be magically better. In this diet, it wasn't. Another study that I want to highlight was uh, one of my favorite go-to studies um, to, def um, to defend the, the consideration of lower carbohydrate diets. Not that I'm ever insisting it be the only strategy, and very few, very few of us are, of course. This study was entitled Comparison of the DASH Diet and a Higher Fat DASH Diet on Blood Pressure and Lipids and Lipoproteins. And here's the kicker a randomized controlled trial. So this is the gold standard of studies. 
the DASH diet matters, and it's helpful for me to point it out because it is the most famous heart-healthy diet that has ever been invented. And, and the DASH diet is dietary uh, approaches to stop hypertension. And at the heart of the DASH diet is this, these pillars of more fruits and vegetables, low-fat foods, and whole grains. And so they, and of course they cut, they cut salt in this as well in the conventional DASH diet. They say eat less salt. So those are really the pillars of the DASH diet. And of course, as I mentioned, it's an emphasis on whole grains. Well, this study was quite clever because they, they reported to put one of the group of subjects on a DASH diet that had some of these aspects, but it was a low carbohydrate, high fat DASH diet where they were eating several times more saturated fat than the conventional low-fat DASH diet. And of course, they were eating essentially no, uh, no whole grains or very, very little whole grains. So it's a direct rebuke of that, of that emphasis on whole grains. The emphasis was rather meat and eggs and eat less whole grains. And wouldn't you know it, they had exact same improvements in blood pressure. And blood pressure matters. That's one of the biggest predictors of whether you're going to have a, a heart attack or not. But the high-fat DASH diet not only lowered blood pressure to the same degree, but it also further improved lipids, like a greater reduction in triglycerides and VLDL without any other changes in LDL. So these very popular lipoproteins and lipids that are measured in the blood as markers of heart health and overall mortality got significantly better in the version of the DASH diet that was cutting its whole grains in favor of other sources of energy, like from meat and eggs. So once again, causal evidence that is challenging the long established correlational evidence that whole grains are somehow magically, uh, magically healthy. Now, those are just some of the studies that I've mentioned um, that, I've, that I've cited, and then you can look up um, to, to kind of support this, uh, well, to challenge the dogma and the paradigm that whole grains are somehow healthy. Now I wanna dig a little deeper into the whole grains themselves and highlight two components of whole grains. And I know this suddenly becomes a very polarizing and, uh, and uh, well, uh, debated and charged topic, but there are two things I wanted to highlight um, that comes with the most common whole grain, of course, which is wheat. And that is phytates or phytic acids and, and gliadin. So with phytic acids, this is the kind of thing that I understand how silly it sounds when I'm about to say it, um, because I, thought the, I th thought the same thing the first time I heard it, but phytates or phytic acids are part of a small family of anti-nutrients. These are honest to goodness molecules found in plants that will deliberately and directly inhibit the digestion of certain um, stuff from the guts, including proteins, and minerals like calcium, magnesium, copper, and zinc. We know this is well established. Phytic acids actually inhibit protein digestion and they inhibit the uptake or the movement of minerals from the intestines into the, into the blood. So when we are emphasizing people getting more magnesium, for example, if you're getting that mag magnesium with phytic acids, you're gonna actually get less of the magnesium than you think you're getting or, or zinc. Zinc is uh, a, a common one uh, when it comes to antiviral therapies and antiviral treatments. Well, wouldn't you know it, if you're getting that zinc with phytic acids, you're getting less zinc from your guts into your blood. And these are, of course, essential minerals. We have to have them. Phytic acids are blocking this. And 
whole grain, healthy whole grain wheat has plenty of phytic acids. Now it goes a little further than just grains. And this is a bit of a tangent. So everyone, let me just indulge me for a moment. I, while I rail against plant proteins, every plant protein that is coming from all these seeds, pumpkin, pea, soy, etc., they also have phytic acids in them. And so the irony is you're getting not only an inferior source of protein, because it is inferior to animal proteins, but then you're also actually getting less of it than you think because of the phytic acids that are inherent to these seeds from these plants. So you're eating an inferior source of protein, and you're actually absorbing even less. So all the more reason to you know, stick to what nature has given us with regards to animal proteins. Now, the other molecule I want to mention is gliadin. Gliadin is a protein component of what we call gluten. And so everyone knows gluten. Um, gliadin is a molecule that can indeed elicit an immune response. There are people who are genuinely, um, they, they almost have this autoimmune, but they're attacking this molecule. But the, in the process of attacking gliadin, the intestines start to really pay the price because that's where the immune process has to happen. So you can have much more inflammation at your intestines while the intestines are trying to attack this molecule. And then this of course starts to spill over into higher inflammation um, and inflammatory proteins circulating throughout the entire body. Now I'll come back to those points when I wrap up in just a moment as I'm nearing the end here. One last thing I wanted to mention was the process of fermentation. I think this is very commonly overlooked there are a lot of people who very vigorously defend the consumption of grains, and they will do so in, in varied contexts, um, historical and maybe even religious, and, and, or, or even bad science. Uh, and my view on it, if someone wants to invoke a historical context or defense of grains, my response is, well, then eat it the way our ancestors did, which would have been a very different plant than, say, wheat is. We have changed wheat over time to have much more starch in it and, and much more gluten and other molecules as well and phytic acids included. Um, so these are not healthy changes. Also, we've changed how we bake them or use these grains. Once upon a time, all of our, almost all of our consumption of grains would have had some form of fermentation because we would have had to let it, we wouldn't have had all the clever ingredients and chemicals we do to prevent things from spoiling. Um, and we wouldn't have had rapid acting yeasts to accelerate the growth of whatever we were baking, whatever we were making with the wheat. So once upon a time, if we wanted that growth, we would have had to let it sit and the bacteria um, would have done all that fermenting and producing all of that gas. So when bacteria are in the, are in the fermented um, dough or the grain, it's eating the starches and then releasing gas. Uh, and that gas is what's of course inflating um, the dough. So the one thing about the fermented grains, the bacteria have done some of the work of digestion for us. Uh, I haven't really even delved into insulin. I will at the end here, but when you have bacteria that are eating the starch, then that's less starch we have to eat and digest and absorb. So the actual glucose load from a fermented bread compared to a real whole grain bread, even if they're both whole grain fermented versus not, we get much less glucose because the bacteria have literally eaten some of the glucose for us and in the process released a gas, which is allowing the bread or the dough to rise. And it's released short chain fats. That's the byproduct of bacteria eating, um, eating starches. And the short chain fats are not only a metabolic benefit to us, but they're also part of what gives the sourdough its 
in my mind, a particularly pleasant tart flavor because short chain fatty acids are tart by their, by their very nature. Also, independent of the reduction in glucose that comes from fermenting like a true sourdough, you have a reduction in phytic acids. So the process of digestion actually will, or, or, or fermenting, will reduce the phytic acids by up to about 60%. And phytic acids, um, these are uh, really, so remember, they're, they're blocking the, the absorption of essential molecules and, and nutrients in the form of protein. And so we're, now we're getting more of what we actually might want from that whole grain, actually. And if the whole grain you know, has more minerals in a refined grain, and, and, it, and it does, well, then all the more reason to try to cut those phytic acids down to get more of those. And one other comment about gliadin, and I have this study is also attached. Um, gliadin is a molecule, of course, that we eat and gets from our guts into our blood. And that can end up in mom's breast milk um, at significant levels. So when mom is eating this gliadin, she's giving it to her baby. And that might start to, I, I'm speculating a little here, but I can't help but wonder if that might be part of this, the growing sensitivity that kids are having at younger and younger ages. It's because they're literally getting it from their very first days as it's moving from mom's diet into mom's milk and then now into baby's diet. So in sum, if I were to focus on a few key takeaways on how whole grains are not the magic um, food, uh, let alone superfood that many people would like to claim. One is that we have a, a genuine reduction in our ability to absorb nutrients and proteins, or well, I should say macronutrients in the form of protein and micronutrients in the form of minerals like magnesium, copper, zinc, and calcium. We can have an inflammatory response to some of the components of these whole grains, like to gliadin. And lastly, we're going to have a significant insulin response. And I end with insulin just because it's, my, it's in my wheelhouse and it's so relevant to overall health. When you eat a whole grain versus a refined grain, the actual insulin response is shockingly similar. It, people would be very disappointed to see, uh, and, and wearing something like a continuous glucose monitor really helps reveal that. You look at what happens to your glucose, knowing that your insulin is essentially following a similar line you're going to have a significant insulin response, even to the so-called healthy whole grains and insulin matters. Chronically elevated insulin is a much better predictor of a heart attack than cholesterol level, than LDL or total cholesterol. Chronically high insulin is going to drive other pathologies like hypertension through distinct mechanisms, uh, fatty liver disease, infertility, Alzheimer's, and accelerate certain forms of cancer, if not cause them, accelerate them. So in the end, before you are tempted to buy that healthy whole grain uh, and before you're tempted to put it in your mouth, um, here are some considerations. The insulin spike, the potential inflammation against some of the molecules in, the, in that grain, and then the, uh, the nutrient depletion that comes from the anti-nutrients, and there are more than just phytic acids that are simply inherent um, in, these, in these grains. Great. Great introduction wow. to the topic, Ben. Yeah, you know, it's, yeah. it's interesting, you know, one of the things that always comes to my mind is that image when I was a kid, you know, and uh, when, when I was a kid, my mom would say, now, Jack, before you can eat a sugary cereal, meaning like Frosted Flakes or something, you have to eat a healthy cereal. And so yeah. I remember seeing the, the Cheerios or the cornflakes with that big Granola. giant, yeah, big giant heart healthy 
you know, uh, eat this, and boy, are you going to have the healthiest heart on earth. I just remember seeing that logo on all of those boxes, and it just, it's such a huge part of what people think. Yep, yep. It's a, it's, it's part of a, a big marketing gimmick, not to get too conspiratorial, and I, and I really actually don't want to go any further than that. Um, you can see the impetus for a manufacturer of foods to use this, um, like whole grains, because uh, it's often going to be at a very affordable price. It's going to make the product less expensive to make. And you can have that marketing angle by playing up the, the approval of the American Heart Association, and which ironically, of course, it's not helping at all. Ben Carley, do you have some questions? We have a lot of questions coming in we'll get to from our viewers. But Ben Carley, do you have some comments before we do? Yeah. yeah. I'm going to beat Carly to the punch. <laughs> Go for it. So, Ben, you, you've said in the past that uh, you eat uh, a grain called this, is it spelt? Is this, what's spelt. it called? Spelt. Spelt. And uh, what is the difference in terms of insulin response to our wheat today? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was... Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because I didn't know how deep we should get. Now, everyone, of course, knows and all the listeners know I'm not a historian and I'm not an anthropologist, but it doesn't take a lot of digging to find these kinds of, of uh, this kind of information, which I have done. So, yeah, I, once upon a time, not even that long ago, um, certainly 100 plus years ago, well within the realm of, of modern history, wheat was very, very different, um, let alone 200 years ago. If you look at what they called wheat, our ancestors from several generations ago, it would be unrecognizable to the wheat that we have now. That older wheat would often have been something called spelt, which is a very different grain, and it bakes very differently. When you, you guys might have experience with this. When you try to bake with spelt, you're going to get something very different. Um, it's not as good. Well, I mean, it can be perfectly yummy, but it's not going to be as kind of light and fluffy in part because it has much less gluten in it. And gluten is something that has been uh, uh, almost worked in. It's been emphasized in this production of new modern grains because you can bake with it so well. It is gluey. It is sticky. And so it lets you have a bread that is much fluffier um, and, and just, you know, a little more palatable rather than being just a little tougher or thicker. So combining the fact that we've had much older forms of wheat that you can still get like encorn and spelt that have much less starch in them up to half of as much um, of this amylopectin A or the, the main starch and, and much less gluten and, and likely phytic acids, although I'm not certain on how well that's been quantified, but combine the fact those, that one detail, a very different grain that was called wheat um, and that it would have been always fermented in some way, shape or form cutting down the starch and cutting down the gluten even more in this process of fermenting. So uh, to me, when people want to defend wheat in a historical context saying we should eat wheat because our ancestors would have, well, our ancient ancestors certainly did not. Our more modern ancestors most certainly did, although I'm sure at a fraction of the amount we are consuming it now, but then let's eat it the way they did. Get an older wheat and get it fermented in, in some way. And I realize that's kind of a hurdle and people will say, well, I'm not going to, I can't do that. And I'll say, well, then don't eat it. Yeah. <laughs> Carly. Yeah. A, another one of those um, ancient grains is kamut that people talk about. Mm -hmm. And that, that is becoming more popular. Um, the food nanny has brought it, you know, to production and stuff. So um, the thing about those, I think that's very different about the wheat we eat today is that the new, 
modern wheat's been hybridized. They've tried to change it and and breed it with grasses so that it will grow shorter and and yield a bigger crop. Well, as they hybridized that, they didn't look at the the nutritional content of those wheat berries. They looked at the, you know, can we get a bigger crop? They were, you know, focused on that. And um, my question to you was, have they looked at, Have are there any studies that look at ancient grains versus modern grains and show the difference in health? Because I think like, like you've pointed out, they're a very different product. Yeah, no, I don't know of any correlational or causal studies that have done that. And and frankly, I don't think it'll ever be done because I just doubt there's enough of an incentive to do it. Yeah, of course. Well, um, the other thing I think that I've heard recently that's really fascinating is this idea that celiac disease has exponentially grown. Um, Like a little over a decade ago, there was one in like 2,500 people that had celiac disease. And now it's like one in 133. And if you look at the changes that we've seen since the 1960s in in grains, in wheat, um, you know, that's just a correlation. But it sure makes me wonder if these older grains are much healthier and, you know, you are able to absorb more protein and less phytic acid and stuff than these newer ones. Yep. And well, guys, one thing that Carly, as you mentioned, celiac disease, <clears throat> uh, it, it's so interesting to note how celiac disease can then pull the trigger for other problems. For example, well, Eddie, every autoimmune disease needs a trigger. You have a genetic predisposition, predisposition, and there's something in the environment that lights that up. And now you actually have the manifestation of the autoimmunity. People with celiac disease are 20 times Two zero twenty 20 times more likely to develop type one diabetes. It's so th- it's a, it's a shocking. And that's part of the reason why type one diabetes will never start until a person has started to eat solids. If it starts before they're eating solids, it's, it's not type one. It's usually going to be uh, MODY, M-O-D-Y, something we've spoken about previously, but there has to be an environmental trigger to virtually every autoimmunity type one diabetes is no exception. And it's, it's entirely possible that wheat is the main finger on the trigger. Hey, Ben, uh, interesting with my clients, you know, we always talk about sugar being the addictive, uh, you know, uh, trigger for our clients, but I don't think so. I think it's, I think it's bread. I think it's, yeah. I think it's grain. Uh, they're, they're seeking for some kind of alternative to bread and to grain. And that is, that is their driving force to for satisfaction. <laughs> Is I need some, yeah. I need some kind of keto bread, and they've made keto bread, but it sure seems to not uh, do well with our clients. Yeah, it doesn't taste. Oh, good. I hate. I I've tried that. Have you guys tried the keto bread with yeah, the big red label? I don't want to mention where I got it or anything else about it, but I could. I threw it out. <laughs> I did too. <laughs> it was not. I couldn't stand it. My kids wouldn't touch it with a ten foot pole, and I tried it, <laughs> thinking, "Oh, this is so clever. I get to have toast again." And I. I ate like half a piece and threw both two bags out. Hey, Ben, we <laughs> even have, the birds wouldn't eat it. <laughs> we have uh, we have kind of a series of questions that are kind of all related to um, to, to a, one idea. So let me see if I can just put the idea out and, and see what your thoughts are. So we have some people saying, "Well, is this if I'm going to have grains, is this one better than this one?" Kind of looking for sort of a, a ranking, kind of a you know what's best, what's the worst. And also questions about rice. So if we look at all the grains, I mean, certainly I'm assuming 
an ancient grain would be rice. But is rice different, modern rice different than ancient rice? And if you started to kind of rank these things, um, I know you're not, that isn't really what you do is like, I, I don't know the deep science. That's probably not something yeah. that you test. Mm-hmm. But do you have kind of a feel for how you rank all of these like oats versus wheat versus rice? Well, I have a limited feel, so I'll just share my thoughts and then would welcome everyone else um, adding some thoughts. Uh, I generally consider oats to be better than wheat. I know there's a lower um, glucose response and insulin response to oats versus wheat. Of course, oats will have little or no gluten, and I like that. That's nice to those who are sensitive to it. Um, and I would actually put, well, it depends. When it comes to the pure starch and insulin effect, I would put insulin uh, rice as one of the biggest offenders, actually even worse than wheat, potentially, especially some of the more sticky rice. That is almost 100% starch. There's almost a, essentially nothing else in it. Uh, so, but, but of course, it would depend on the rice. Um, uh, and, you know, a more kind of whole grain brown rice would have a little likely more, maybe more comparable starch level to what you see, um, but a different starch, but what you see compared to wheat. Uh, but then other grains, I actually don't know, like other grains, like, like barley, where would that fit in? I'm not sure. I've never looked well enough, but I would just at a surface, simple, um, placement, I'd put oats as one of the better grains to focus on. And then wheat down at the bottom, depending on the rice, it might be right there too. Yeah. And I would say, I kind of, am starting to wonder if it's not so much the the grain, that's the issue, but it's the way we're farming it. Um, a lot of these modern grains, um, one is called Springfield wheat that, you know, we have over a million acres in the United States growing this grain. It's owned by a chemical company. A chemical company produces this wheat um, because they have, a, they have morphed it and changed it so that you can spray a chemical somewhat like glyphosate on the crop and, um, you know, kill all the weeds so that you'll get a a higher yield in your harvest. And what is that doing to us? What is ingesting those um, chemicals doing to our gut lining? You know, your gut lining is much more um, susceptible to taking in those chemicals than say like your skin if you were outside spraying it. So I kind of feel like that's the issue. And some of these if you look for an ancient grain or an uh, an heirloom grain, those are ones that haven't been hybridized and changed and made so that you can spray chemicals on it, like kamut and einkorn and stuff. Yeah. Uh, Naomi asks about quinoa. What about quinoa? Oh yeah. Well, I don't know, Carly or Rich. You might not might know more than me. I I don't think quinoa has any gluten, um, which would be a positive for those who are worried. It it. I, I know from my own tests, it has much less of a glucose response when I'm, with, when I'm wearing my CGM. Um, so I think uh, quinoa is probably one that uh, could be used a little more liberally or, or looked at as a grain of choice if you're going to use any. I would certainly put it over wheat. Mm-hmm. What about, uh, from Tanya, what about sprouted grains? Does that make a difference, like sprouted spelt? Yeah, I know what you're talking about, but I actually don't know. That's a great question. Uh, I, I don't know how, what that, how that would change it. I had an uncle who was overweight and sick, and he started sprouting ancient grains, ancient wheat, um, and making himself these waffles with it. And that's basically all he ate. 
And the change in his body was remarkable. Wow. I know that when you sprout things, the available proteins and nutrients are higher. You, you absorb more. Um, it's more useful. So I think that's probably a much better way to eat hmm. grains is to sprout them. Uh, from from Sil, uh, does psyllium husks behave like grain in our metabolic process? No. No, psyllium husk is a soluble fiber. So that, that's actually a really good point um, that I maybe ought to have brought up. So the, the, their starch is a huge class of, well, not that huge, but it's a big class of, of food. And that involves undigestible starches like fibers. And then it includes digestible starches um, like just starch, like what just turns into glucose immediately. Uh, so psyllium husk is a soluble fiber and so that is a fiber that we don't digest. Our enzymes, our kind of human-made enzymes can't digest it. That's what makes it a fiber. But the bacteria can digest it in our large intestine. And so it's, it's considered a prebiotic fiber, soluble fiber. That's in contrast to insoluble fiber, um, which is not digestible by anything and just sort of scrapes its way down the intestines, providing just bulk um, to our um, bowel movements. Hmm. Uh, from Daniela, is there any evidence on what happens if you consume vinegar with grain? For example, putting vinegar on rice. Oh, yeah, I don't know about rice, but the studies that have been done looking at um, looking at apple cider vinegar in particular, uh, they they were looking at uh, meals that involved wheat. Uh, so, so wheat was the primary starch in these in these. And this this was studies, uh, I think, in type two diabetics. But yeah, it, it, apple cider vinegar, I think it's pretty safe to say it's going to blunt the glycemic and insulin response to virtually every starch, whether it be rice or wheat. I can't imagine it would make any difference. From uh, a viewer on YouTube, isn't cereal, oatmeal, bread, pancakes, waffles, muffins, bagels, just about everything, just a different form of the same thing metabolically? Yep. Yep. I think it is, right? Yep, it is. Yeah. <laughs> They're all delicious. <laughs> yeah, that's that's part of the problem, you know. That's we, what that's what they also have in common. <laughs> it just bread, baking bread just smells so good and the warm flavor oh, colors and the you know, just that warm brown on like the crust. Oh, that's so oh. tough, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I you guys, I I am so enamored by the baking of bread. That I have one, I've told my, my wife this a few times. I've told Cheryl, I would love nothing more than to own a little bakery. You know what? The <laughs> irony, not because I actually want to sell these things to people and make them fat and sick, but there's just something so enchanting about baking a loaf of bread. It really is intoxicating. It's true. Yeah. And you know, for, for my wife and me, when we want to do a little splurge and we're going to go out and eat, we're not tempted to have dessert. That, that, that doesn't even sound oh, good no. to me. What I'm tempted to do, though, is have one of those nice, warm rolls when it comes out, right? Yep. I hear you. Oh. Hey, we've now, got ben, a, go ben, ahead. Hold on real quick, Jack. Yeah, go I, ahead. There's this restaurant called Carabas. They have sourdough bread, and I dip it in a bunch of olive oil. Is that, does that help it at all? Does <laughs> well, that make me feel better? Oh, no, well, the fact is it's, it's probably a real sourdough, so that's a win. But, in fact, that's a good point, Rich. If it's real. Most, <laughs> if that's it's exactly real. right. Yep. You... Everyone who's listening, next time you go to your grocery store, find the sourdough loaves. Every one of them will say that it has vinegar in it. Now, of course, we just talked about how nice vinegar can be. 
but that's a fake sourdough. And that little amount of vinegar is not going to offset the, the starch effect of it. I, I'm certain it's not going to be nearly enough. But most sourdough breads are fake sourdough. They've just added a smidge of vinegar to give it the, the tart taste of a sourdough. It's very rare to be able to find a true sourdough in a grocery store, you t like a big box grocery store. You typically have to buy it from a smaller um, kind of more boutique store because it's and it's going to be a lot more expensive, but it is amazingly delicious. And I what know Trader Joe's has a kind well here in Utah Valley, although we have people from all over the world. But there are big chains that like Trader Joe's that do, that do have true sourdough bread started from a starter. Um, but most of them are going to be a fake sourdough. And you want to look for a three ingredient sourdough that that makes it real. Right. So what does that wheat, mean, Carly? Wheat, salt, and water should be the only yep. ingredients in a true sourdough. There should be not, no other ingredients. And I've found the one we buy, it'll, it says from a starter, or it'll actually even kind of include some little mention in the ingredient list that it started from an actual sourdough starter. So Carly. Which, is... just, which just means you took some wheat berries yep. and you soaked them in water and you let the bacteria from the air actually go through that fermentation and then you add wheat. So you said yep, the there's three a things. power to fermenting. I know Carly. Carly's fermenting all the time. <laughs> I don't even want to know what Carly's fermenting. <laughs> that's why. That's why she's in Idaho. Yeah, the reason she moved. It, yeah, it's, it's Idaho. The, the moonshine. The moonshine laws are a little there. more lenient. <laughs> so Carly, the three things you said: wheat, water, and salt. Is that what you said? Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, I, let me just interject one quick thing before we uh, move on to some other things. We have, because you teach at Brigham Young University, which is a university that's, that's owned by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we have a number of followers and fans and friends who are members of said church. Now, I don't want to go down the road of talking about the religious component of this, but I do want to let them know that Dr. Bickman has given an amazing address where he actually, this was what, a year or two ago, Ben? Uh, 2018. So a, a couple of years ago, he was invited by the university to give a, a large format talk about his uh, studies and, and the things that, that he's talked about today. If you have interest in, in listening to, to his position when it comes to this religious component, I'll have our team paste into the comments a, a link to that talk. I think that's just the simplest way don't you, Ben, to just those who have yeah. questions related yeah. to that to, to yeah, listen? Yeah, in fact, that, that's a great way of bringing it up. Uh, and I won't go much further than to say I, this is a very, I meant what I said at the outset, which is this is a very polarizing, charged, heated discussion. This this kind of love or um, not hatred, <laughs> but, but maybe a slight fearful respect of, of grains. Some are enamored with it and they think that they are almost religiously encouraged to, to focus on grains. And, and uh, I think there's some danger um, in trying to be too dogmatic in our approach, even when it comes to, um, you know, apparent religious ideas of, of, of food and eating. What, uh, Ben, what's the title of that uh, address? So our team can, can. Yep. Yep. It was, it was called the BYU forum, which is kind of analogous to the BYU devotionals. Just the forum allows the speaker to highlight their, or encourages the speaker to highlight their area of expertise which in my case is metabolic science. So if someone just did a, a, a in their web browser, just did a search for Bickman um, plagues of prosperity in BYU, that would probably be the first hit. 
Okay, great, great. Hope that helps because we have quite a few people that have uh, have asked about that. So, that, and, and yep. Jack, and Jack, I've got clients all over the world that, you know, I'm sure they have in their own religious uh, beliefs have other um, medical or, or or health platforms that they follow, and a lot of them is rice based, and it's tough for them to make this change. Mm-hmm. I mean, their whole life has been wrapped around, you know, different grains. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, any last uh, comments or thoughts before we move on? We're going to leave the topic, uh, the, the main metabolic classroom today. Any other last thoughts? All no, comes I back said to everything insulin. I wanted to. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go buy me some sourdough bread, man. It all comes back to <laughs> insulin. Great. Oil and vinegar. Rich, you dip that in that oil and vinegar. Oh, oh my goodness. Some, with some spices. Oh, God. oh yeah, so yeah. Good. Put some black pepper in that oil and vinegar oh, and dip that in there. Goodness, yeah. Yes, yeah. Rich, yeah, I could yeah. imagine you just like dipping it in and like rubbing it all over. Oh, your body. man. It's <laughs> awesome, man. On my head. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks. Let's change the subject. <laughs> You're making me hungry. Making me hungry, too. All right. Well, thanks, Ben. We appreciate the metabolic classroom today. And, and uncomfortable. Carly's having thoughts of Rich. <laughs> this, okay. is never... this, is called, this is called the messed up metabolic classroom today. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you for listening to the metabolic classroom. This podcast is brought to you by Insulin IQ, nutrition and lifestyle coaching for insulin control and better health. Learn more at InsulinIQ.com and by Health Code, the world's healthiest and most delicious meal replacement shake. Learn more at Get Health, that's G-E-T-H-L-T-H.com. Find us on Facebook and YouTube at InsulinIQ. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.